question for you, young lady. Every one of the kids in this house is happy except for you. Why is that? No, What's your problem? Stop it! All I can say is that my life is very complicated. I'm sorry, but I didn't get half of what you said. This is a real Canadian movie podcast, Independent Investigation. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and I'm excited to be talking to one of the producers and writers of the documentary, The Accountant of Auschwitz, Ricky Gerwitz. The Accountant of Auschwitz, as the name implies, deals with some fairly heavy and complex subjects. And my talk with Ricky does include references to violence, genocide, Holocaust denial, hate crimes, and current events that some people may find triggering. This talk also contains spoilers for the film. That being said, I can't recommend this film enough. And if you're listening to this episode the day it drops, you'll be able to watch it for free on the documentary channel in February of 2019 during their preview month. Check your local listings for that. There's a VOD release on the way as well, and we'll update our website and Twitter when that happens. The website is rcmpodcast.com, and the Twitter is at rcmpod. The Accountant of Auschwitz had a triumphant festival tour across the world, including at the Palm Springs International Film Festival, UK International Jewish Film Festival, Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, and of course, Canada's own Hot Docs, where it won second place in the Top 10 Audience Award. I started the conversation with Ricky Gerwitz, asking her about the film's run at Hot Docs. Um, you know, we are based in Toronto and Hot Docs Film Festival is in Toronto. And we just thought, what, wouldn't it be wonderful to premiere in our hometown? You know, the subjects of the film live in Toronto. Uh, they could be there with us. And all the stars kind of aligned towards like we were in a bit of a race to the finish line. Uh, and it was like the perfect time for when the film was kind of coming out of the edit. So it all worked out like really well. We couldn't we wouldn't have wanted to premiere anywhere else. It was just perfect timing. And that's just how these things work. Uh, can you walk us through a bit of the plot summary of it? So the film is, uh, although it, the title talks about uh, mentions Auschwitz, the film's really not a Holocaust film. Uh, it's about post-war justice. And uh, it's specifically about a 94-year-old former SS officer who in 2015 went on trial for the murder of 300,000 people in 1944. Um, and the reason it's significant is because this trial asks a lot of questions. So we use this trial to get at kind of the bigger issues about who is complicit, what does justice look like, um, how far down the line do you prosecute, and what is the statute of limitations on war crimes? So this 94-year-old Oscar Groening, he didn't kill anyone in 1944. He was a, a bio, he was a foot soldier. He you know he was a lower level guard uh, at Auschwitz where six million people were killed, but he helped. The machine run. You know, he was a cog in the wheel. And the question is, how how instrumental is the cog, and should they be held accountable when so many of his superiors, who did far worse, got uh, little to no punishment at all? Uh, he's almost being punished now because he outlived them all. And there's a new generation in Germany that wants to see, you know, the the sins of the past punished. Now, you originally covered this trial for CTV in 2015, which is how you were originally introduced to it. Yes. So I was working as a news producer, and I came across this trial. And at first, I thought, oh, well, he's guilty, of course. I mean, he's, he's Nazi. And I, I, I 
have a little sympathy, of course, for that. Um, but the more I kind of read about this specific person and the both legal and, you know, moral ambiguity surrounding why he's being bought, brought to trial, uh, I thought, oh, okay, there's actually a lot of different questions here. And I think a documentary might be a kind of great way to unpack that. It's so not black and white. It's very much a lot of gray. And we can also use this trial to look at how we prosecute war crimes today and uh, and how we see kind of the genocide and who's complicit in genocides that are taking place right now. Uh, you know, when we look at Oscar Groening, who was just kind of following orders, uh, he was a young guy. He was brought up in that world. He wasn't he wasn't uh, one of the leaders. Right. He was he was at 12 when he joined Hitler Youth. Um, how, how do we kind of um, how do we relate that to crimes that are taking place today with young people, right? Yeah. Well, because we roll our eyes so much at the idea of someone following orders, but if that's what you're raised to believe, how do you then deal with those questions, right? Exactly. And so the whole idea is like, how much independent thought do you have at that age when you are really, Germany at that time was like, uh, you know, a big brain, an exercise in brainwashing. And so, you know, you grew up in a national socialist family, you join Hitler Youth at the age of 12, you sign up for the SS voluntarily, I might add. Uh, so he's not blameless, but how complicit is he and how, 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 how much blame does he get? Um, and is it fair? Like all his superiors weren't punished. So, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he shouldn't be. And you do such a great job at the beginning of the film, setting up those questions because you have, you know, him talking about how much fun it was and talking about his coworkers. And just, it's the reminder that these were people that were doing these things, but there was this indoctrinated belief system that Jewish people and homosexuals and uh, people who had disabilities were somehow less human. And it was in their blood that they were less than human. And, uh, how do you argue with that right how do you how do you change that point of view of like no these are people yeah it's uh it's such an interesting well i mean it's a very tragic time in history and it's very interesting to see how this entire country just fell in line with these beliefs that were so abhorrent uh and you know he when he talks about how much fun auschwitz was for him you know, this was a time of war when uh, many of his countrymen were fighting on the Eastern Front and dying, and he was protected at Auschwitz, drinking vodka and eating sardines. Mm-hmm. So being at Auschwitz was a way of protecting himself from almost certain death um, on the Eastern Front. So they wanted to be in Auschwitz. Um, and also, you know, something that we also have to consider is the fact that these weren't Outside of the camp setting, these aren't dangerous people. So, you know, after the war, it's not like they're lifelong criminals. They actually become regular citizens with, you know, um, jobs and pensions and community. He was a, he was an honorary judge in his community. So it's like it's it's almost like this whole group of people was brainwashed for like a period of fifteen years and then just went back to normal. Um, and then not all. There were many that you know held these beliefs forever. But, um, but a lot of them, like he himself stood up to Holocaust deniers. So it's like, is, is his good deed later in life enough to absolve him of his sins when he was a younger person? I'd like to get into the personal aspect of making this. Uh, You made this over a period of two years. Is that correct? Three years. Three Three. years. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Then my question for you is, I mean, we're dealing with some very challenging topics, and some of these stories were incredibly hard to process. It's a lot of personal anecdotal stories. Um, How did you sit in this sort of material for that long? Um, 
it is really tough to hear. Now, I had been on um, a tour to Poland uh, to the camps and the ghettos uh, about five years ago. I went with a large group called March of the Living, which takes um, young people to visit kind of the places where these atrocities happened. And you go with survivors, so you get a kind of firsthand um retelling of what happened, which is so valuable. Uh, so that was quite emotional. Um, and, um, so, so when I was hearing these stories, I had heard, um, Max and I like the main characters, I'd heard their stories prior to sitting through their interviews. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was more prepared than I think maybe our viewers will be when they watch this film. Well, you do especially a, a fantastic job where you're comparing the numbers, which can be very hard to fathom. And then you compare that to the actual eyewitness testimony and the individual, and that makes it not easy to process, but it just, I think, really brings it home more. Is that a technique you guys deliberately added in? Well, um, the thing is, I think people forget like 6 million is such a big number that like that's 6 million individual, uh, you know, fathers, families ripped apart. Uh, you know, there, everyone has like a tragic, terrible story and it's almost like, how do you, how do you fully comprehend what 6 million means? It's, it's very, it's hard. I mean, I, I, I think that yeah, I I, uh, I think that the survivors did a really good job of putting a human touch on that on that number. And with that, when you sat down with them individually to get them to tell their stories, um, how long were those interview sessions, and how did you sort of create that rapport with them to get them to share as much as they did? So the the ones that we interviewed are actually very involved in Holocaust education, so mm -hmm. they quite often. So it wasn't as difficult for them. Although interestingly enough, all of them didn't speak about it until about 20 years ago. So the, after the war, they just, uh, it was almost like shameful that they felt shame. So they didn't speak about it. Um, you know, at the beginning of the movie, Bill talks about how his kids always ask, like, why don't we have any aunts, uncles? And of course, he didn't tell them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think in the 90s, uh, when Holocaust, uh, the Holocaust started being speak spoken about more, you know, there was Schindler's List, there was a lot of education and movies on the topic, people started coming out more uh, to speak about their experiences. So these survivors that are featured in our film are very, like they attend schools, they talk about their story a lot to get the word out there. Um, and so they were very strong. I mean, Hetty, of course, she, it's so hard hearing her story because, you know, she, she gets taken back to that time every time, like the, the when she when she has to separate from her mother and never see her again. Yeah. Um, so th they lasted quite a while. Like those those interviews were you know full day interviews. Do you think that documentary is part of oral tradition and part of oral history? Yeah, I think that um, there's so much that can be learned from nonfiction movies, and especially you know keeping the memory of these people alive. The Holocaust was seventy years ago. 70 years ago, sorry. Um, and it's losing, uh, I think it's, it's fading from people's memories. Documenting experiences like theirs is so important in teaching the next generation, but also, you know, making it relevant to today. So I think that that was what we tried to do with this film is, we, is to, to explain that it's not just part of the past. It's certainly taking place now and, uh, is, will be a part of our future if we don't do something. Um, so it, we really just wanted to ask questions like use, 
use these testimonies and and the trial to ask questions about kind of our 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 thinking our thinking and our approach to uh, the co- complicit complicity of of crimes and and justice and punishment. And that's uh, something that I think becomes very obvious as you watch this movie, just that all of these people are in their 80s or 90s, like how old these people actually are. Uh, what happens when we lose these firsthand accounts, and these eyewitnesses? And that's something that's very scary because, you know, this is in 20 years from now and even 10 years from now, most of them won't be around. Uh, you know, Oscar Groening died uh, survivors are dying. So survivors and perpetrators are dying. And this is really a last chance to get that firsthand account. The further we get away from 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 firsthand testimony, the harder it will be, I think, to, for people to connect to it and understand what actually happened. Well, of course, that, that uh, study was just released a few weeks ago that was reported by a number of major news sources about how millennials especially have no idea what the numbers were. They thought that uh, Germany was taken over by force by Hitler, that he wasn't democratically elected. Um, like, just the details are already lacking. And this is kind of fascinating to me, because like you, like you said, um, I think World War II is one of the most represented on film uh, wars or periods of history. I mean, you talked about Schindler's List, um, uh, Thin Red Line, any of that sort of stuff is all uh, is all happening. Why is it that we don't have this familiarity with the actual details when it's so prevalent in our pop culture? I don't know. I think that, you know, the farther you get away from history, the less in my in mind, the less uh, prevalent it is in people's minds. So, you know, when if your grandfather is a war hero, you hear his story. If your grandfather isn't, then you don't you're not hearing your great grandfather's story, or maybe you are, but it's a small snippet of it. You know, how many, how much do we know about the great war, the first world war? Mm-hmm. Uh, not much. I, I certainly think a lot less than the second world war. And that's probably because it was over a hundred years ago. So those firsthand testimonies aren't around anymore. And the interest just isn't there the way, uh, the way it was 50 years ago. <laughs> Now, another thing you do really well in this film is talk about why this matters now. And you have very disturbing footage of a lot of the uh, the fastest uprisings that are happening. Um, you single out two Holoca- Holocaust deniers um, and the work that they're doing. Um, and my first question for you is, how do you represent and acknowledge the fact that Holocaust denial is a real thing, but not present their arguments in a way that could show them as rational? It's quite, I mean, it's quite obvious to the regular person that they are irrational, and we use the actual testimonies to um, provide the testimonies of credible survivors. Well, all survivors are credible, but they're they're much more credible, obviously, than the deniers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the the reason we featured the deniers was to show that this is there's a growing movement, and uh, if we lose touch with the, what happened in the past, that movement can eclipse, you know, can, can eclipse what what people are taught. So it's dangerous. Um, those people are dangerous. Actually, the one of the women who's featured in our film, who's a denier, she's in in jail right now because in Germany it's illegal to deny the Holocaust. That's really interesting, because especially when you get into the issues that Germany had legally later on in letting people off the hook who should not have been left off the hook, um, that you would – I know Mein Kampf just recently got published with a number of um, anecdotes and footnotes attached to it. Um, so even that is kind of a component of like, all right, we're easing up on this a little bit for educational purposes, but how many people are going to latch on to this, right? If you just look around the world, the the populist movements that are kind of very vitriolic and like just have a lot of 
uh, hate they're built around hate. It's, it's growing in yeah. Europe, especially. Well, of course, in the U.S. And uh, it's it's scary, like how you know people seize on on these moments. How would you get people to see a film like this? Like I know even I talked about my initial reluctance to watch the film, and boy, right. I'm glad I did. Um, but I know lots of people would be like, "Oh, I don't need to see this. I don't need to watch this. It makes me feel uncomfortable." How would you how would you talk to people like that? I would say it's not a Holocaust film, mm-hmm. first. I think that it's much more about uh, justice, post-war justice, and how we view that, how we view, you know, justice in terms of um, who's responsible and what a punishment is. Um, but I think that I would I would say it's more just about debate and discussion. And if people are interested in in that, then they'd be interested in this film. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to ha- to make this film is because I. I felt like I wasn't sure what I felt about him when I read his story. And then I started reading more. I thought, um, I was really conflicted. I didn't know if he should be punished or not. And so every day I would feel something different. And that's why I thought this was a good topic. And so my hope is for people to come into this film and think one thing and then walk out and say, well, actually, you know, I, I don't know what I think, or I think the other way now. Um, I think that to challenge people's kind of, pre-held beliefs on how they feel on this topic would be um, kind of would mean we did our job. How many surprises were there for you as you were making this film that you decided to include as a twist for the audience? Um, Well, the Damiano case is so interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I just thought it's so it almost it almost is like a thriller. Like it's it's pretty wild. So So the Groening case isn't the trial wasn't that interesting, but you had to, and we weren't allowed to film in the trial. So we had to, you know, use sort of techniques like animation to convey what actually was said. But I knew a lot of the twists and turns going in. I had done a lot of research, so I kind of knew what to expect, except of course that Eva moment was quite a twist as well. That happened during the trial. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess that that's part of filmmaking is trying to kind of keep the audience guessing. <laughs> <laughs> Which you certainly do. And I mean, like we said many times in this, uh, this interview so far, you, uh, you were dealing with a lot of big questions. And one of the biggest questions is, of course, understanding the difference between moral and legal implications. Can you go into that just a little bit and your, your interest in that and what you've sort of figured out for yourself? Sure. So um, one thing I do want to mention is that I, we were very um, concerned about we don't we didn't want to alienate any of our survivors. We don't want to make it seem as though he's absolved of his guilt because we certainly don't believe that. Um, but we just thought that there were certain questions that we had to ask. And um, uh, luckily, like we were a bit nervous when the survivors were going to watch the film and, and, and we got their blessing. So that was really nice. Um, but uh, because the questions that we raise are kind of uh, mm, a little bit um, hard for them to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, that he might not be fully as, as guilty as as they believe him to be. Now, in terms of the moral guilt, um, something I often say is, you know, in Holocaust movies like Schindler's List, um, you get the hero, which is Oscar Schindler, who just wants to save one more life. And then you get the real evil villain, like Amon Gweth, who's shooting Jews from his balcony, you know, as target practice. Um so you get this narrative that is so common in Hollywood films and in newspapers of the good versus the evil. 
And what we were trying to convey in this movie is that Oscar Groening was not, certainly not good, but he wasn't one of those evil men. He was a, just, he was a cog in the wheel. And it was all these kind of, I would say, normal brainwashed kids who weren't necessarily evil, but they followed the orders. It was them, it was the cogs who made the Holocaust happen. And so the Holocaust would never happen if there were 40 evil men in Germany. It happened because of the groanings, the um, sort of mediocre foot soldiers that followed this kind of way of thinking. And it goes to show how, um, how ordinary people can do very bad things um, in under certain circumstances. As you're kind of constructing this this film, um, you're also using imagery in a really interesting way. I've, of course, seen uh, Night and Fog, um, one of the documentaries uh, about the Holocaust and about the death camps that has a lot of imagery of um, the things that were left behind. Uh, mm-hmm. And you use uh, the piles of shoes, the wedding rings, the suitcases. Uh, Night and Fog has images of like hair that's been shaved off people. Um, and those are incredibly striking images. What is it about these inanimate things that can just destroy us um i just think that they belong to people yeah they're just like people's like not only possessions but they're part of their bodies and you know like we said six million is such a big number but the minute you see someone's hair like well that's one person yeah an individual and you know especially the suitcases are quite heartbreaking because you see the family name written on the suitcase and they were coming expecting to just be a work camp right but of course that wasn't what happened um, so, you know, I highly recommend anyone who's interested should really go to Auschwitz. Uh, they've kept it in kind of the condition that it was 70 years ago and it's quite haunting. Um, yeah. So I think that those, uh, those suitcases and glasses and, and hair really sh- sh- can serve to sh- remind people how, how vast this operation was. And another thing you do too is, of course, you you humanize um, the perpetrators of this. You have the moment where you're showing all of the um, uh, all the mug shots of the people, who, uh, the twenty the twenty two at Nuremberg. And do you find people when they're looking at that are able to see human beings, or are they just seeing monsters? I think those ones they see as monsters because those were pretty. Those were evil men. I think one of them ordered the killing of ninety thousand people. Yeah. I mean, there is no. I, it's it's heartbreaking to me that most of them didn't serve any punishment. It's one of the most striking parts of the film is when Ben Ferenz, who's these, who's this 98 year old former prosecutor who was a lead prosecutor at Nuremberg. So he was 27 when he prosecuted some of the most evil men in the world. And he says, and he's so eloquent. And he says there were 3000 of, from this one group that he wanted to prosecute, but 3000 men that killed 1.5 million people. And he was only able to prosecute 22. Why? because there were only 22 seats in the dock in the court. And that is so uh, cinematic of what, what, what the post-war justice looked like. Just uh, out of this 800,000 SS officers, only 124 ever served a life sentence. So the vast majority of perpetrators went unpunished. Um, and then you come to today where, you know, the Oscar Gronings, 
who were kind of not the people who killed 1.5 million people, but they were there and they helped. They're being punished. And I should add that there's actually, um, there is a, a trial going on right now in Germany of a 94-year-old former SS officer whose name is not being released. Why? Because he's being tried in a juvenile court. Because when he committed the crime, he was a juvenile. Oh, that's fascinating. Fascinating. Mm. And I mean, just the very idea of legal precedent. And we talked too about this was one of the first major international trials and the Americans were so involved in it. And we've we've talked a lot about are the Americans the police of the world? You know, like Canadians have our peacekeepers. But whenever we were looking at these sort of prosecutions, it tends to be Americans. And something that's always fascinated me about the American legal system is they're so good at finding these very unusual angles that will stick. So you look at like Al Capone getting got uh, getting got on taxes. Um, I mean the Bagwan from Wild Wild Country, they get him on immigration. Um, same with uh, um, Ivan, they get him on immigration initially, and then they extradite him, right? So what is it about Americans that they're able to like find those angles? I don't know. Uh, I know the Eli Rosenbaum, who's in our film, who um, he's the head of the war crimes unit for the Department of Justice, and he's the most amazing man. I mean, he has dedicated his life to putting Nazis away or extraditing them to face punishment. He's put more Nazis away than any, you know, any, anyone, uh, except he is so modest that, uh, he's not known about the way others are. Um, and he went, he, I guess, looked at every single legal option that was available to him to get, uh, the perpetrator Demianuk properly punished uh, and and after about ten long years, he finally saw uh, saw you know that happen. So that was quite nice for him to see that. But he's such an amazing man. I mean, I uh, I wish that he got more more attention. Although that's not what he why he does this. Beautiful. Well, uh, unfortunately, we are at the end of our time. Um, I really appreciate this. Uh, I need to make sure that people uh, check this out on the documentary channel for free for the month of February. And of course, when it gets a VOD release, people will be able to check it out there. Uh, Ricky, I just have a quick question for you. Is there a favorite uh, Canadian documentary you would recommend or film that you really enjoy from Canada? Yeah, you know, the winner of the Hot Docs Award, um, even though they beat us, we were number two and they were... (laughs) And the Hot Docs Audience Award, uh, Transformer, it was excellent. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch it, but it's about, you know, transgender uh, woman. Um, and uh, it's just a very personal story. And I thought it was really, really excellent and well done. Beautiful. Uh, oh, and just one more quick thing. What uh, do you hope that Canada would do more to support its artists? Making films in Canada is an incredibly difficult process, and I'm talking more on the finance side of things. It's like you almost need a PhD. I could not have done this film without the support of my co-producer and executive producers who who had experience in the industry because this was my first film, and it's very, very difficult. And I think they need to fix the finance structure because it's uh, it's almost impossible to navigate for first-time filmmakers. I think it discourages a lot of really creative people from actually making um, great products. Uh, That's everything I have for you, Ricky. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart, and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. 
Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.